Hey, man, you can have a seat. You can have a seat. What a great morning. What a great morning. There, Dave Baldwin, that was, that was awesome. That was a, a great way to lead us in the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, my heart was encouraged. Just, uh, I just didn't think about confetti in heaven, but now I will. I'm really looking forward to it now. I mean, that was the, that was the one thing now. That was, it was it's a fantastic reminder of what it is we have in Christ. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 10. As you know, we've been running through the book of Mark together. Um, and if you're keeping up with us, there's, there's only a handful of more chapters left. Um, and uh, Mark 16 is on Easter Sunday. It just so happened that that happened. I never planned that or anything. So, But Mark 16 on Easter Sunday, which means we are like six weeks from Easter. So the chances of snow are narrowly escaping us now. Um, it's right, amen. And the kids are like, oh, man. <laughs> um, that's all right. Mark chapter 10. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. There's going to be some recap flashing forward, going backwards, all over the place in the chapter this morning. Um, so, but we'll, we'll be here at Mark 10. I'll just start reading in, in verse 17. Um, yeah. Father, please be with us as we look at your word today. Lord, I ask that you would meet us, not where we are, and leave us there. I think too often we think that we can come as we are, and we can, and that's awesome. God, you never intended for us to stay where we are. So again, this morning, there are people sitting in this place who have come running to you with handfuls. Lord, may they understand they need to come with empty hands. Lord, I pray somebody this morning would come to know Jesus as their Savior. I pray that a follower of Jesus Christ would recognize the idolatry that's crept into their lives, and Father, may they put that to death. Father, I pray for myself that you would get me in the background. Lord, that you would open my eyes. Spirit, that you would lead and direct. That the words spoken would be exactly what you want. Thank you for your word. We commit our time to you. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 10, it says this. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one's good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. Stop there. So, so you have a Jesus and his disciples getting ready to head out on the journey. And here comes this man running before Jesus in a, a totally undignified manner. 
I mean, he comes running as fast as he can, and it says he kneels down before Jesus, which is the, 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 the approach that a slave would take to their master. So he throws himself down before Jesus, and he asks a sincere question, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You get a sense of desperation in this man as he comes running and puts himself before Jesus, and he says, no, I, I need to know the answer to this question, and I need to know the answer to this question, and I, I can tell I don't have the answer to this question. Maybe you do. So Jesus, what is it that I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, I love Jesus' response. He cuts right to the chase. He says, okay, before I begin to answer your question, let's start with a definition. Let's make sure we are using the same idea in our terminology. Let's make sure we're defining the word good in the same fashion. So let's agree at the onset that there is no one that is good besides God. So our definition of good is based on the very morality and character of God. Good is not uh, defined on this slidable scale of comparison to other people. Good is not this um, uh, um, impossible to fully comprehend, like define love. No, good is definable. Good is in existence, and it exists as an anchor in who God is in character and morality. It's been defined for us already. We don't get to define goodness ourselves. That's important. It's defined for us by God, by God himself in the Ten Commandments. As, as he lays out the Ten Commandments, what we see is God's character, God's goodness, God's morality. So Jesus' response to this young man is, let's make sure we're on the same page, and let's make sure we understand the term goodness, and let's make sure we understand that goodness is based and measured and, and determined by God's morality. So, based on that, Jesus says, how good are you, young man? And it's fascinating to me, after Jesus runs through the commandments that have to do with someone's interactions with other people, the young man's response to Jesus when Jesus says, how good are you? His response is, I am really good. Parents ever had a kid say that to you? Never. Uh, if you've ever intercepted a letter to someone named Santa Claus, I think you see a violation of the proverb, let another man praise you and not your own lips. Because those little buggers are like, Santa, I have been amazing this year. And that's kind of where this guy seems to be coming at. No, I am I'm really good. I've upheld all of God's morality and his character and his, his desire for goodness in all of my interactions with other people. So let's assume, and this is a huge assumption, let's assume that he's telling the truth. Let's assume that, that, that he has been moral in regards to other people. He has upheld the morality of God himself in his interactions with people day in and day out. Let's assume that is true. As soon as he says this to Jesus, verse 20, I have kept all of these from my youth, Jesus looks at him. Look at verse 21. Jesus looks at this young man, and it says Jesus loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. So Jesus 
looks at this man who has come and run into his presence, fallen on his knees before him in an undignified manner, asks him a very sincere question, probably the most sincere question that can possibly be asked, and Jesus' immediate response to looking at this young man who just said, I have kept the Ten Commandments perfectly since I was a child. And Jesus isn't angry. Instead, it says he looked at this man and he loved him. He loved him. He didn't love this man because he was lovable. He didn't love this man because he had earned the love of Jesus. He loved this man because he's Jesus. Jesus loved this young dude because this young dude needed more of Jesus than he ever realized. And so as Jesus gazes at you this morning, no matter where you are and where you sit and, and where you are in your journey with Christ, no matter, no matter how hard it has been, no matter how many times you have fallen down, Jesus looks at you with compassion in his eyes, not because you deserve it, but because he knows how desperately you need him. He came to Jesus thinking he just needed one more thing. He wasn't sure what it was. He just knew it was one more thing. He knew he was incomplete And I guarantee you, he did not expect the answer he got from Jesus. Go, sell everything, give the proceeds to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. It's like this young man came running to the the feet of Jesus and said, okay, I'm not feeling well, Jesus, and so I need a prescription. And upon evaluation, Jesus' response to the young man is, there ain't no medicine that's going to fix you. You need surgery. This young man came thinking full well that he would come into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus would say, yeah, here's your one thing, done. But instead, Jesus said, this is far worse than you ever imagined. The cancer has gone straight to the bone, friend. You need surgery. See, Jesus knew this man as only Jesus could, And he instructed him to remove the wealth from his life. He instructed him to have the wealth cut out of his life like a surgeon would go in and cut out a cancerous tumor. Jesus knew that this young man had an idol inside of him. And because this man was worshiping an idol, it caused him to pull up short from loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus says the idol that's growing inside of you is growing faster than cancer can, and it's causing you to disobey one of the most important commandments, the very first commandment, you'll have no other gods besides me. And instead of being able to forsake everything, follow Jesus, instead of being able to love Jesus with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that idol had grabbed his attention and his allegiance to such a degree that his response to the words of Christ is heartbreaking. Verse 20, and you lack one thing, you go and sell all that you have and you give it to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And you see the response of the man, verse 22, the young man was dismayed by this demand and he walked away grieving because he had many possessions. He walked away, he was dismayed. That word means stunned. It's the same word that's used for a gloomy, storm-ridden sky as the storms are rolling in, it just gets darker and darker and darker. The soul of this young man is growing darker and darker because he leaves and he realizes, I can't do this. The idol in my life is way too big. So there's some clarifications that need to occur here, and they're very important, or else you will hear something that I'm not saying. The first clarification is this. Not every person who has wealth is worshiping an idol. 
Not every person who has wealth is worshiping an idol. That's, that's vital for us to understand. Money is not sin. Now, I know it's uncomfortable, but that deserves a hearty amen too, folks. You know? Deny yourself. Hallelujah. Take up your cross. Amen. Money's not sin. I sure would like to find out. <laughs> Money ain't sin. Sorry for the English grammar people in here, I apologize. Is not sin. It happeneth not to be a sin. There, better, okay. The love of money is sin. The pursuit of money at the expense of other people is sin. The worship of money is sin. But you go through scripture and wealthy people aren't called sinners. Abraham was wealthy. Boaz was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. Uh, you get to Luke chapter 8 and you have this amazing story of these, these women who are wealthy and they're supporting Jesus and his disciples on their ministry. Oh yeah, but you know what, that's, that's, you get to the New Testament church and wealth is horrible because Ananias and Sapphira, I mean, they, they sold their land and they kept the money and they were struck dead. Not because they kept the money. It was fine that they sold their land. It was fine they kept their money. It was fine they made that investment. The problem was they lied. They made themselves look a whole lot better than they actually were. They lied to God. That doesn't go well. So don't, don't say that wealth is a problem. Wealth isn't a problem. The love of it is. The pursuit of it at the expense of other people is. But money's not itself. And, and God is not. There's another clarification thing. God isn't calling all of us to sell all of our possessions. It's not what he's calling us to do. I don't have time to get into it, but you have the interaction with Zacchaeus. Ends up very wealthy, and he ends up selling half of his wealth, and Jesus is thrilled with that decision by Zacchaeus. So Jesus isn't calling on everybody to decry wealth, right, to, to sell everything. He's not doing that. What he is saying is, in this young man's life, money is his God. His accomplishments have become his idol. And every single one of us in this room has an idol. Well, Frank, it ain't money. Fine. There's other ones. I have, I have time to do this. So let me, let me I, I'm going to ask you, I mean, if you want to write this down, write this down. I'm going to ask you nine questions. And I want to see what comes to your mind. Because a, a few authors um, uh, combined to this. This is Tim Keller and J.D. Greer, a combination of them. Um, a Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, and then Gospel by J.D. Greer, two awesome books that I could not commend to you highly enough. But in those books, they talk through how do you identify an idol in your life, and they, they, they encourage us to ask these questions. So uh, I'm going to ask the question, and I'm going to give you a, a few seconds to, to wrestle with the answer, because we need to wrestle with this answer. This will help us identify possible idols in our life. The first question is this. When you have a quiet moment, if you have a quiet moment, where do you escape in your private thoughts? What does your mind most naturally wander to? Second question, what one thing do you most hope is in your future? Maybe it's your career, a salary, owning a home, seeing your kids grow up and be successful. What, what is it that without having it, your life would hardly seem worth living? 
What's the one thing you most worry about losing? What's that one thing that you feel like you could just absolutely not get along without? What is the thing that when you think about losing it, it throws you into anxiety? If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? nothing wrong with wanting to change our lives, but if we can't imagine being happy unless something changes, then we have an idol. What thing have you sacrificed the most for? What you prize most is shown by what you pursue the hardest, so what's that thing? Who is there in your life that you feel like you can't forgive and why? And let me explain that one a little bit. Maybe an ex-husband ruined your reputation and stole the years of your life. Maybe your wife cheated on you, publicly humiliated you. Maybe an irresponsible business partner ruined your business. Close friends stole your boyfriend. Drunk driver killed your child. When you can't forgive someone, it's usually because they took something from you that you depended on for life, happiness, and security. When do you feel the most significant? What is the thing that you hope everybody finds out about you without you having to tell them? What makes you feel the most significant is usually what you put the most weight upon in your life. What is it that triggers depression in you? Depression is often triggered when something that we deemed essential for life and happiness is denied and often identifies the thing that we have an unhealthy addiction to. Speaking of addictions, the last one is this. Where do you turn for comfort when things aren't going well? Maybe you bury yourself in your work. Maybe you try to find escape in the arms of an emotional relationship that is not your spouse. Maybe it's some sensual pleasure like pornography or maybe food, maybe alcohol, maybe drugs. It's not if you have idols, it's what are your idols. And those idols are the things that are keeping you from Jesus. I mean, look, look what he says next. And this, this, is, this is fascinating. Look at verse 23. He, so he just finishes this whole thing and says, okay, now you go and sell and get, uh, give the proceeds to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then you come and follow me. And, and the young man walks away discouraged and depressed, and it's, Jesus turns and looks at his disciples, verse 23, and he says this, how Hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And when he said this, the disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, how, how hard is it for this person who is depending on their possessions or their accomplishments to enter into the kingdom of God where they must deny everything and love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? How hard is it? And it's almost like he sees the look of panic on the disciples' face. He's like, guys, I'm telling you, it's hard. And he uses a frank illustration, which I love. It would be like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Okay, so you don't get the joke. Because most of us have grown up hearing the camel through the eye of the needle over-explained. Because that's just incomprehensible. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, the disciples were astonished when they heard Jesus hear it, but we've been astonished at that saying for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since then, since it came out of the mouth of Jesus, a camel through the eye of the needle. That's stupid. And so what somebody did is they looked and they go, oh, you know what? I think it's a misspelling in the Greek. It wasn't supposed to be camelus. It's supposed to be camelus. Camelus means camel, but they misspelled it. It should have been camelus, which means cable because that makes a lot more sense. It'd be like a cable going through the eye of a needle. But no, that's, that's not. And then somebody, you get to the ninth century, and somebody stumbles upon some ancient history that nobody else has ever heard of, nor have they found to this date, that says there's a gate outside of Jerusalem. That gate was called the eye of the needle. And so what Jesus is saying is, it's so difficult for the rich person to get into heaven. It's like a camel gets ready to enter the city, and it's packed with luggage. And the owner of the camel has to take all the luggage off, and this gate is pretty tiny. So the camel, in order to get into the city, has to get on its, its hands and knees. Do camels have hands and knees? I don't know. And it has to shimmy through the gate, because that's what camels do, is they shimmy. See, what's happening is people are trying to over-explain the joke. Jesus says, let me tell you how difficult it is. It's like a pig flying. We know that joke. Pigs don't fly. Pigs can't fly. Scientifically impossible. Ludicrous. But I get your point. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. As long as a person has an idol in their life that they hold on to, as long as a person has a God in their life that they're not willing to let go of, it is going to be very difficult, even impossible, for them to get to the place where they're no longer trusting in themselves or that God or their abilities or their own goodness or their own sincere desire, or their own possessions, and enter into the kingdom of God. And as Jesus says this, you see the look of astonishment on the faces of the disciples in verse 26. They, they were more astonished, and they said to one another, then who can be saved? This young dude had it all going on. He came undignified, not caring about what anybody else thought, and ran to the feet of Jesus, fell down before Jesus, asked him a sincere question. He is a man of high morals, which means it's not going to take years for him to redeem his reputation with the culture and the community. And he comes with money. Disciples could use some money. This guy has it all. All. That one got away from me a little. (laughs) 
Oh, great. Anyway, their question is sincere, though. They're like, look at him. If not him, who? Problem is they're living in an upside-down world. It happens in flying, and it happens in diving. Um, there's situations where a person will be diving in the ocean and, and get far enough down where there's a number of different factors that occur without getting to all the science of it. For some reason, their sense of direction is completely lost. And when they attempt to surface, because they've, they've lost all sense of direction because they are surrounded by the ocean and have lost all comprehension of where they are, they end up, instead of surfacing, diving further down. Same thing happens in, in flights, in flying. A pilot who is not using his instruments, well, actually, I'll get to that in a second, using, instead is looking at his surroundings, is somehow lost in the direction that he's going. He's, he's confused or she's confused. He doesn't know, wait, but, but east... Left seems this and right seems this. And then they look at the instrument panel and because of the confusion has set in, they're looking at the instrument panel and they don't believe the instrument panel anymore because their senses are telling them, no, 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 that's not the horizon. I need to go down. I need to go down. This is, uh, this is all wrong. The instruments are malfunctioning. I need to go down. And that's when John F. Kennedy Jr. died for that very reason. He lost his understanding of space and direction and crashed his small airplane into the water. They believe that's what may have killed Kobe Bryant. It's, it, it's, they are so submerged in the things around them, they can't tell which way is up and which way is down. And that's what's going on with the disciples right here. And in fact, that's what Jesus has been doing throughout the entire chapter. Look, 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 just flip back a little bit. I, I, maybe I'll highlight just a little bit. You get the very first one. You have the Pharisees coming to Jesus and asking him about a hot topic in that area, about divorce. That, that's, a, that's a big one. It's a big one for us today. And they ask Jesus, and it's very interesting if you see the language that is used. Verse two, is it lawful? Is it allowed for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus' response, what did Moses command Moses allowed us to write divorce papers. See, this conversation, this argument is based on very interesting perspectives. They're asking what is allowed, and Jesus is saying, no, what was the intent of marriage? And instead of falling for one of their traps, he drives us right back to the original meaning of marriage, which is God created the male and female, and the male and female will leave their father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. They are knit together and the intent and the command of God is that what God has joined together, no man can pull it apart. That's the full intent. I don't know if I have a lot of time, but I'll do this anyway. You gotta understand, guys. God hates divorce. He would be a terrible God if he didn't. What does divorce do to the people, not even the husband and wife? the people around that relationship. And it tears them up. It, te it alters their lives forever. N then you talk about the husband and wife who, who have literally been sewn together in their soul. Their souls are so mingled together that they are now one soul. And when that happens and you just rip it apart, it doesn't come neatly. 
What kind of uncaring God would he be if he just looked at it and went, ah, that's all right. No, he hates it because he knows what it does to people. Now, there's grace. That's why God allowed for it. That's why God permitted it. The reason he allowed for it and he permitted it is because the women were being treated atrociously by the men of the culture. The men of the culture had created their own laws and rules that said, you know, if she burns your toast, divorce her. That's not even a joke. Another rabbi had said, uh, the, uh, said if, I, if I see another who pleases me more than my wife, I can divorce my wife and pursue her. And then what was happening to these women is they were being left in the dust. Now they're treated like they're, 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 they're harlots. They're, they're women who could never be married again because of the situation. And so God stepped in and said, no, if there is going to be divorce, you are going to care for the women. God did it because the heart is their heart. But, but the point here in Jesus is you're living in an upside-down world where you think you could get divorced for anything. The expectation is the plane is going to crash. What's wrong? That's not the picture. The picture is knit together forever. You, you are living in an upside-down world. He continues and he begins talking to the disciples. It's fascinating to me. Verse 13, the, the people are bringing the children to Jesus but the disciples were rebuking them. It's right after the disciples had pulled Jesus aside and were having a conversation with him, asking him follow-up questions. It's almost as if the disciples were like, no, it, I'm sorry, children, go away. It's big people time. It's time for us to have a conversation with Jesus. You, you little ones, you just go. You, you just go. Now, see, children in this time had absolutely no uh, uh, um, respect. There, they, there was no such thing as a child-centered family. They were nuisances. They brought nothing to the table except for expense. And so they, they weren't given a, a higher level of respect, and so they were often pushed to the side, and that's exactly what the disciples were doing here. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the kingdom ethic. You're, you're wrong. That's not how this works. You're living in an upside-down world. God values those little people. And you get to our story. It's almost as if the disciples looked at wealth as the qualifying factor of being a disciple. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding. That's an idol. Then you, then you keep going and you get Jesus who is laying out his future with the disciples. And he says, uh, I'm going to Jerusalem, verse 33. The Son of Man's going to be handed over to the chief priests. They'll condemn him to death. They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill him. And he will rise again for three days. Okay, hold on. Put yourself in the disciples' position where you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he's like, okay, guys, let me tell you what's going to happen this week. Uh, I'm going to be uh, accused. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be handed over to the priests and the scribes. The Gentiles are going to take me. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to put me up on a cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again from the dead three days later. I don't know what your response is going to be. I can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be the response of James and John who then approach Jesus and say, okay, we just heard all that stuff about you being crucified, laid in the tomb, and then resurrecting three days later. We just heard all that. That's amazing. We have a question for you. Uh, will you do whatever we want? We want to sit on your left hand and your right hand. Could you make that happen? See, it's an upside-down world because what they viewed Jesus as is someone who could get them something. See, we live in that same upside-down world where the disciples cry out, if not this guy, 
then who? Who can be saved if not this one? Verse 27, Jesus answers them. With man, it's impossible. But not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Jesus, this, okay, the, the camel through the eye of the needle, this is so difficult. Who, who in the world can possibly be saved? How can they be saved? How is it that anybody is going to get into the kingdom of God? And the disciples, as they, they watched this rich young man hang his head in grief and shame and walk away, they look at Jesus and they're like, who? Jesus says, you have it upside down, boys. Back to verse 15. The context of the little ones being brought and rejected by the disciples, and then Jesus bringing them to himself. Jesus answers the question, who? And he says, truly I tell you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven isn't the one who thinks they have it all together. The one who enters the kingdom or attempts to enter the kingdom of God with with a sincere heart and asking good questions and comes based on their own good morals and merit, who, who comes based on their own possessions, wealth, and accomplishments, that isn't the one. The one who enters the kingdom of God is the one who enters it like a child. Now, Coming as a little child does not mean coming innocently. If you have a toddler, you know they ain't innocent. And and I don't think he even means it's coming uh, with a child's ability to just trust or to, to receive what's in front of them or come with simplicity or with wonder. I think it's more about what they don't have than what they do have. So what a little child brings to the table is nothing. They're small, powerless, not sophisticated. And they're coming in helpless dependence on the one that they come to. When children enter the kingdom, the children of the kingdom must, must enter it helpless, one, one, ones for whom everything must be done for them. That's the way we all come to him. That's the way anyone comes to him. That's the only way to come to him, is to come to him with this understanding that it's his grace and you're nothing. That's how you come to Jesus. His grace, you're nothing. It's not just the attitude, it's the reality of Jesus Save me or I die. Save me or I'm done. It's the helpless person out in the waves being carried away by the undertow. Help me or I'm done. Or, a little bit more humorous but true, it's the giant-headed child that I have when he was but a toddler, he's the oldest Jordan, had a giant melon. It was awesome watching him learn to walk. Because with a giant melon, you just kind of go wherever it leans. So Jordan had all these things. And Jordan loved to get into things. 
So there was one, we have a little toy box that had a little flip open lid, and there were a couple times where his giant melon was a little heavier than he expected. And so he'd be leaning in for a toy, and the melon would go, and then the rest of his body would go in. But there was one video that my wife took, which actually, um, my son needs counseling because she took a video before she helped him, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would have done way worse than what she did. He was just crawling. He wasn't even walking yet. He's just crawling around. Like, and he went under the couch. But when a giant head gets under the couch, I mean, you've had your head get in places you can't get. Well, maybe you haven't. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it's a family thing. I didn't realize that. But. So he, he gets his head under the couch. He ain't getting out. And my wife, who loves me dearly, because I needed this, went and got the video camera first. Just kind of slid it under the couch. You see this little head like, Hey, Mom! And she picked it, and he kind of scooched his way back. That dude would still be there today if she didn't come and get him. Save me, Jesus, or I die. Don't think that your way to eternal life is your sincerity or your goodness or your accomplishments. Your way to eternal life is coming to the cross with empty hands, knowing that with you it's impossible. It's coming into Jesus' presence with the simple faith of a child, a child who hears Jesus loves me. This I know, because the Bible tells me. And it's enough. Is that you? Or are you depending on your sincerity or your good morals or your incredible accomplishments? Or are you wholly leaning on Jesus and Jesus alone? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we're thankful for you. Father, you remembered us in our weakness and you saved us from our greatest enemy. And that's true for any and all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. But God, if there's somebody here who hasn't done that, then that's not true. They're going to face the full consequences of their sin one day. And God, I pray that you would open their eyes now and cause them to know how destructive that day is going to be. Lord, I ask that you would give humility where humility is needed. Father, that the one who, who's just kind of kicking against you, fighting against you, may not even understand why. Man, Lord, I pray. I pray that today they would simply call out Understanding they bring nothing to the table and they have nothing. May they cling to Christ and Christ alone. For it's in his wonderful and powerful and merciful name I pray. Amen.